The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning, as we enter, in, enter into this journey of Holy Week, we are uh, coming up into, into Palm Sunday. Uh, and and you know, a personal aside, what was really fun about as I kind of still adapt to the low country and, and, this, and life in the low country, um, some of our... Uh, floral decor here had had wilted and was not as lush and green as it had been when it was cut and so Stacy goes out with a pair of clippers and says I'm just gonna cut some more palm branches <laughs> it's like well we have to order these things in Tennessee um <laughs> so it's great um go have your own little palm service at your house um but but we enter into this and and what I want us to do this morning is is to try to uh, separate ourselves from all the distractions that encumber our minds and our hearts and really try to, to situate ourselves uh, in, in two different places, which is sort of difficult. But um, I want us to think about in, in, in Jerusalem uh, in, in about 30 AD when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem and he's coming in on, on, a, on a donkey, on a, on a foal of a, a, a donkey. And what was going on in those minds of those people and those hearts and, and some of their aspirations and, and dreams and how they had been shattered. Uh, but we're going to wind the clock back six centuries uh, to a time when the words that those folks were speaking um, and, and the aspirations they had and the hopes that they had were all looking forward to a king. And in Zechariah, it is the king that is promised and it is beautiful how this, um, this prophet that I, as, a, as a, a pastor I've spent very little time in, um, never preached through it, uh, but, but the things that it unfolds about Jesus' life from chapters 9 through 14 are fascinating. Uh, it talks about Jesus being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. It talks about his side being pierced and, and the blood and the water flowing out. It talks about when the sheep when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. You see all these rich imageries and these verses that are cited in the New Testament some 67 times in the, in over various books of the New Testament are, are contained in Zechariah. So it's just a really humbling reminder of God's word and how it is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword and it meets us right where we're at. And so what I want to do this morning is beginning in verse 9, we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Uh, chapter Zechariah 9, verse 9 through 17. And, and, and this is, is the most famous of verses uh, in Zechariah, and it talks about Jesus coming in and his triumphal entry. Uh, this passage is cited, um, or, or in some form or another, in, in all four of the Gospels. In all four of the Gospels. And so it's important in, in what their expectations and longings were. So join with me in, in giving your attention to the reading of God's Word. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoner of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. 
For I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim its arrows. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. And on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us this morning from his word. Father, we pray as we give our attention on this passage, Lord, one that you fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus uh, some six centuries after it was written. These words were given to Zechariah, Lord. They, they ring true and have incredible value for us today. And so, Lord, would you turn our hearts towards hearing from your word, and would you, through the power of your spirit, write the truth of your gospel on our hearts, Lord, to change us into the matchless image of our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you've been with us for the last several months, we have been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And at the Sermon on the Mount, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he is talking about the countercultural values of the kingdom. As we have spent for this last several weeks, really much of this year, we've been looking at, at the Lord's Prayer, how he taught his disciples to pray. And when Jesus taught his disciples to pray that, that God's kingdom would come, he taught them more than just an outline for how to pray. He, he opened his heart to them and challenged them to be inspired by the same vision he had for the kingdom of God and how it would come to bear in the life of his people for which he would go even to the cross. In fact, as we look through the Gospels and we study it, what we find is that Jesus' whole life and ministry was about the kingdom, about restoring and redeeming and rescuing everything that sin had ruined. And so as we fast forward through the life of Jesus and we go to Palm Sunday, we go to his triumphal entry, we see that these folks had very real expectations. They had heard about Jesus as king in this kingdom and they had heard about these countercultural values and in their minds it began to resonate and form and, and they were looking for certain things. They were looking uh, for someone to bring deliverance and hope and, and, and freedom and, and, and ultimately restore uh, God's covenant promises to Israel as a kingdom. Zechariah, written in, in some would say 520 B.C., was written with that very idea. The, uh, the prophet Zechariah was, was proclaiming to the southern kingdom Judah, those folks who had come out of exile and under Babylonian rule and had been returned to the, the small uh, Persian province of Judea, uh, that, that in their various circumstances, a lot of things were going on that were beyond their controls, that the, just, just were heavy upon their hearts, that, that these circumstances were only temporary. And that God, in, in, in accordance with what he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and through David, was going to bring a coming king. And one who would bring peace to his people and to all nations. And so that is the, really the backdrop of, of Zechariah and, and, and the, the context in which it is spoken. 
And so today we're going to look at four things as it relates to what it means when our king comes. What it means when our, 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 the king Jesus, in whom all these things are fulfilled, rides into Jerusalem. But also when he is resurrected as we enter into this journey of Holy Week and look at the, at the realities of, of the fullness of redemption that we have in Jesus. So the first thing I want to see this morning is that Jesus pursues people who are in places of discouragement and despair. Jesus the king pursues people who are in places of discouragement and despair. In verse 11, it tells us, it says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. When I was studying this this week, that that term, waterless pit, popped off the the page at me. Uh, What I uh, first thought about in sort of the biblical context is, is the place that Joseph was. When his brothers put him in a pit... Now, if there were waters, he, maybe he could swim or maybe he couldn't, but, but he, he sure could scurry up towards the surface and maybe hope to get out. But if there's a, a deep, deep pit, some meters deep, and you're at the bottom and there's and there, and there nothing but water, there, there's no way to get out. When we were in Kenya in the summer of 2010, uh, they would dig latrines. And there are latrines that, in the bedrock of the, the Seoul in Nairobi. They would go in and they would literally take a, 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 a chisel and a hammer, kind of a five-pound hammer, and they would start digging into the bedrock of, of, of the earth, and they would dig down meters and meters and meters. And in fact, they would go down so deep that it got to be where the air would become very stale and it would be hard to breathe. The, the image of this idea of a waterless pit is a place that, that's almost suffocating. It's a place of despair. It's a place of discouragement. And that's the place that these people in in Zechariah who are hearing God's word, that's the place where they're at. You see, Israel was this this prominent and proud nation. They were God's chosen people. They they had had the the brilliance and majesty of, of the kingdom under David. And they saw it tear in two. And it was divided into northern and southern kingdoms. And, and then ultimately they saw that those kingdoms came crashing down. The northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And the southern kingdom was conquered in 582 BC, 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. And so here come the Persians under, um, under their rule. And they come in and they sweep and they conquer the Babylonians. And Darius was a little more gracious than the, the Babylonian rulers. But he was still an oppressive king. They were still in a, in, a, in a foreign nation worshiping and seeing idols that were not God. And, and, and they even saw their own hearts be drawn into the syncretistic forms of worship where they had split allegiances and, and were worshiping uh, in, various, in various ways. Uh, the, the taxes were high for these folks. Darius was drawing from the people of uh, um, taxation so that they could fuel his military machine so they could go and attack Egypt. This was the landscape, the geopolitical landscape of, of where this letter was written. The people had come out of exile and they had not been there out of exile all that long. And they had tried to rebuild the foundation of the temple, but they had not yet seen the temple rebuilt. And as they were living and in, in this struggle and in this tension, and, and no doubt they had all sorts of other issues in their life, they were brought to a place uh, of isolation and depression and struggle, wondering, God, where are you? When will your promises come to bear in our life? Lord, how long? 
And that was the question they asked. In the first century in Rome, the Jewish people were under Roman rule. Another kingdom that had risen up and conquered another kingdom, had conquered another kingdom that had ultimately conquered the Persians. And that through this all, they were still paying taxes to Caesar. And they were, their temple was, uh, had been rebuilt, but it yet, yet wasn't what it was when David and Solomon had, had provided the, the means and built the kingdom. And so they, too, were a people who were grappling with their own identity, wondering when God's promises were coming to bear. Perhaps you today are in a situation. You've seen a relationship sour and, and deteriorate and break. You've seen someone whom you loved receive a, a poor diagnosis and, and pass away, hopefully into glory. And this is your first Easter, Easter without them. Perhaps you've suffered heartache or heartbreak or pain in business or pain amongst friends or pain in your community or some other uh, nagging uh, struggle that has been internal that you feel like you can't tell others about for what would they think of you and you're a Christian and you're supposed to have it all together because you are God's people. You see, God's word rings true for us today as much as it rang true six centuries before Jesus was born. And what this passage is telling us is that through God's faithfulness to his people and through God's faithfulness to his people because of his covenant that he has remembered what he has promised to do and his promises are, he is faithful even when we are unfaithful. And he is true even when we are untrue and that even in the midst of our discouragement and our despair and our anguish and our depression, he comes and finds us in those places. And he remembers his covenant. He remembers his covenant, covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He remembers his covenant that, that God's people, he would be their God and they would be his people and that they would be a blessing to the nations. And he remembers how through the blood of the covenant that was shed when Abraham in Genesis 6, had that sacrifice and that God passed through that, that, that God was saying to himself, if I should not uphold my end of the bargain, let this too happen to me. Let me cease to be who I am. All these things are going on. And what God is reminding his people is that he comes to them in those places of brokenness. And so friends, Christians, first-time visitors, People merely passing through from Midwestern states hear the good news of the gospel that Jesus comes and meets you where you are, but he will not leave you as he finds you. That he will write his gospel upon your heart and he will bring you out of those places of, of, of those waterless pits and those places of despair where there is no hope and he will give you hope. It tells us in the next verse, it says, return to your stronghold. O prisoner of hope. O prisoner of hope. One who is gripped and, and guarded by hope. And that it will be an expectation for what God will do when he shows up. Friends, our, we have a king who comes and meets us in those places. The next thing that we see is that this king who comes and meets us in our discouragement and in our despair is a king who comes to us in peace. He is a king who comes to us in peace. In, in the most famous of verses in this, in this uh, prophet, it tells us that your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Humble and mounted on a donkey. This morning, Matt and I got here rather early. 
Uh, there was one vehicle in the parking lot. It was a Harley Davidson. <laughs> Matt came up and he said, I sure, I was just hoping that was you. <laughs> and I, it was not. My wife will never let me have one of those. And she loves me very much and our children and that's why I won't. And I love her, so that's why I won't. But what I was thinking about is this idea of a Harley is that would be a pretty great thing for a king to come riding in on. But, but to give you kind of a mental imagery, he, he would not come. Jesus does not come on a Harley. He comes on a Vespa. <laughs> he comes riding in on, on something that is humble and meek. And if you're riding a Vespa, because that's your get-around uh, transportation on the island, I am in no way offending you. I think they're awesome. But what Jesus is saying here and what this idea of a donkey means is it's not just someone of a lowly estate that is riding in on this uh, animal because they don't have the means to have another animal. No, there's rich significance through the Davidic kingdom of what it means to come in on a donkey. In 2 Kings 9, King Jehu comes in and when he comes into Jerusalem, he is the king and the line of David comes in on a donkey. And so the messianic expectations of the people in the first century, having seen Jesus, knowing that he was from the line of David, and all that he had done, and the the crescendoing in John 11 with the resurrection of Lazarus, these folks are expecting something big. And so when Jesus comes in on the foal of a donkey, he's not coming in on a war horse or on a tank or on a Harley, which would be really neat with a, a, a leather jacket and all sorts of cool things. He is not coming in that way. He's coming in bringing peace, and he comes in unarmed. It's almost as like if he's walking in with his hands out saying, I have no sword, I have no weapon, I come in peace. For so many of us, what we think of peace is the absence of conflict. And there's a reality that that peace is an absence of conflict. But Jesus did not come in an absence of conflict. Jesus came to war against sin and death. But his weapons were not that of military might or some sort of war machine that was funded by oppressive taxes upon God's people. No, he was coming knowing that he would leverage his resources as the king of the universe. That he would leverage them at the cost to himself for the flourishing of his people. You see, shalom in the Hebrew language means the word, means flourishing. In our English language, we really don't have any single word that would fully encompass all that shalom means. It means flourishing. It means thriving. It means completeness. It means wholeness. It means things are how they are supposed to be in the economy of God's redemption. And in the lives of God's people in his kingdom. And so even this idea of peace, even this idea of shalom, and this this king, Jesus, who is riding into Jerusalem, and who Zechariah was prophesying six centuries before it even happened, was looking forward to the day when all would be made right. When all that is sad would come untrue, when everything would be made new. It is looking to the cross and looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. When When all that is sad all those diagnoses and all the pain that encumbers our lives and the bankruptcies of of material possessions but the bankruptcies of our soul, the the, the cancer and the depression and the cutting and, and all the afflictions and addictions that we wish we could get out from under but we somehow can't find the strength to do. Jesus says, I will step into those places and I will bring you peace. And I will redeem you. And it doesn't matter how pour off you are in those situations. I love you and I care for you. I'm entering into it and I'm bringing you out of it. 
and I'm going to deliver you to something that's far more wonderful. I love this passage. Uh, the, the third thing that Jesus does is the king returns what was lost. The king returns what was lost. In verse 12, it says, Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. It's saying everything that you lost, all that you think you have given up, all that you thought had been lost with the destruction of the temple and the ruining of the southern kingdom in 586, I will return to that to return that to you in abundance. Saying, Christian, the things that you think you have given up, that you think you have lost, the things you have sacrificed to follow me, the ways that you've died to yourself, I will return to you those portions, and I will give you far more than you ever dreamed. I will restore to you far more than you imagined. I will give you the fullness of the identity as, as a beloved child of heaven, the, the, uh, an heir to the king King Jesus, uh, the one who has reconciled us to the Father. I'll return to you the glory, the glory that was lost in Eden when the first sin creeped in the world and we doubted God's goodness and we've been doubting it ever since. It says, I'll return to you this, this double portion. What's so rich when we think about this idea of the re- restoration of a do- double portion is what the double portion means in this era. You see, when we have... So I've been told I'm not in this place. But when, when we divide our estate and we're writing up our wills, we said we got to make sure we, we divide up everything evenly because we wouldn't want one kid to get more than another. But that's simply not how it happened in the biblical era. The firstborn son always got a double portion. The firstborn son always got a double portion. What this is saying in so many different levels and what would have rung in the ears of God's people when they had heard this prophecy is that they were going to be restored to the place of prominence. Whether a woman who was in despair, a widow, or someone who had never given birth to a child, a a second-born son or a third-born son or on down the list, uh, another child in the family was saying, you were going to get something that you could never gain through your own earthly merit. Through your own uh, conniving and scheming and plans and strength and and cunning, you could never get this because there's only a a place of double portion that comes through being born into it. And so the reality of what Jesus is saying is that I am going to the Father and I'm going to do what you could not do in being the firstborn of God and, and, and the one who is the rightful heir. I'm going to share my inheritance with you and bring you out of those places and give you hope. And I'm going to give you far more than you could long for. Because I'm going to return to you to the kingdom as it should be. The kingdom of shalom, the kingdom of flourishing, the kingdom of thriving. And you're going to receive what you had lost. And so don't despair, don't discourage. Look forward to the shalom that he is bringing. And the way that he is, is, is working through this. And so oftentimes what we think about. Uh, is this idea of a king being overthrown. Uh, they saw it in Assyria. They saw it in Babylon. They, after Babylon, they saw it with the Persians. And the Persians saw it from the, the Greeks. And the Greeks saw it with the Romans. And, and it was this constant Syria and this landmass in the Middle East that was constantly a, a state of war. Um, there was always this idea that once you got to the top, you had to be stronger than the next because someone was vying for your place. But what this is telling us about this kingdom is it says that I will, I will cut off 
from the chariot from Ephraim. Verse 10, I will cut off from the chariot from Ephraim and, and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea. From the river, talking about the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. It says that his kingdom shall have no end. There shall be no earthly limit to it. And even what's more beautiful about this is it says that with the cutting off the chariot from Ephraim and the, and the war horse from Jerusalem, Ephraim represented the largest tribe of the northern kingdom. Jerusalem was the center, uh, the capital of the southern kingdom uh, of Judah. It's saying those things that had been at enmity, enmity and, 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 and have adversity between one another, I'm going to restore them. Those who think they've been cast off, I haven't forgotten about them. I'm coming for them too, and I'm going to unify them in this new kingdom that has no end. And that that these people, my people, who I have shown my covenant and steadfast love for, are going to be a blessing to all the nations. And it tells us, not just that that this is going to happen, and that this kingdom is going to come, and that Jesus is going to establish it, and that through his death on the cross and ultimately his resurrection death will have lost its sting and he will be the victorious uh, ascendant triumphant king who sits at the right hand of God the father it tells us also and what it's pointing for is this reality that one day he's going to get up and he's going to come back and when he comes back it, it says that in verse 14 then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning and the Lord will sound the trumpet and, and will march forth in the whirlwind of the south. It says the Lord will protect them and they shall devour and tread down the sling stone. There's the, the second half of this chapter that we don't often spend a lot of time on is rich in its imagery, not just of Jesus' triumphal in, entry into Jerusalem. It's also talking about his triumphal coming back. When he will come back as king of kings and lord of lords. And he will return on a war horse. And he will come to set everything that is wrong in the world and utterly, definitively, and and, and for one final time, remove sin from all things. And so we don't just celebrate the resurrection next week. We don't just celebrate Palm Sunday and his triumphal uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We're looking forward to the glorious reality of when he comes back. Because the story's not over. It's... um, I just had these thoughts of, of, of how my, my father, when my sister and I would tussle about as siblings do, what would he always say to us? Don't make me get up. <laughs> that was a bad thing. When Jesus gets up, he comes back and it's a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing for his people because he will gather them from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And he will draw them to himself. And ultimately, shalom will come to bear. And it will reign over all things. And there will be no challenging the authority of who Jesus is or his kingdom. And it's just this brilliant scene. I didn't do this in the first service, so if you were there in the first service, I'm sorry, but now you're here, and so you get to hear this extra. In Revelation 19, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name 
by which he is called as the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, this, this triumphal entry is going in to make peace, to meet us in those places of discouragement, to meet us in those places of, of despair. A, a, a bruised reed he will not break. And he comes to us offering grace and mercy and forgiveness. I love the song that they sang during the offering that his, he is known by his mercy. But this king, this king Jesus, he's coming back. And he's coming back. And when he comes back, when he gets up, when he gets up, he, it will not be good for sin or death or destruction. And because it has already lost its sting and it is not victorious. And it is a mop-up operation to utterly rid this world of everything and every way that sin has challenged and afflicted God's people. And that we will be restored in its double portion in the fullness of all of God's glory and design and the realities of his kingdom in which he had given his disciples. Uh, the prayer that we would pray thy kingdom come to in, uh, inspire us and aspire us to follow him in, in truth and in grace. And that we would live into the resurrection that which we celebrate and that we would be his people. And that he would be our God. You see, friends... Regardless of where you're at today, you may find yourself having walked with Jesus for years and you may find yourself just tired. And you just sort of need a gut check or a reality check of, do I really believe this? I would just encourage you to spend time this week marinating in one of the Gospels. Each of the Gospels spends a third to 40% or, or more of their time focusing on the last week of Jesus. And look and just marinate in those things. Of Jesus, the one who gave his life, who, who established the new covenant and, and bled and died in your place. He, he did what we could not do. And lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. So that we would, would have that double portion and be heirs in his kingdom and be reconciled to the Father. And that through that, Paul tells us that we are more than conquerors for those who are in Christ Jesus. It tells us that nothing on heaven on earth could separate us from the love of God. These are things that we need to be reminded of. Perhaps you're here because someone invited you and you, this Holy Week thing's kind of a big deal and you just wanted to get your friend off your back. And so you, you came to church today. I just want you to know that this is a, a safe place for you to explore the truth claims of the gospel. And that regardless of maybe where you've come and a different, maybe faith tradition or another religious tradition we come to invite you to to meet jesus as he has presented to us in the scriptures and that you would know the gospel is not about how you get right with god but how jesus has made you right how he has fulfilled and satisfied every criteria of god's law and that that is credited to your account by by virtue of believing him as our lord and savior so friends, as we go out of here today and we uh, turn our phones off airplane mode, if you did that, and look at the master scores, know that as much as that is important, it has no significance in the eternal kingdom other than, than, than knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord. That it is great to win a, a golf tournament, that it, it is wonderful in, in many th ways, 
But what Scripture reminds us is that what matters most is our names are written in indelible ink in the Lamb's Book of Life. And that through that, our, our names will echo into eternity. And we will be heirs to the High King, and we will enjoy the shalom that will reign in His kingdom that He has come to establish and will reign forever and ever. Amen. And so my hope for you this week is that you would enter into this place and enter into this story and that you would come back Thursday if you're able and Friday if you're able and Sunday and that you would would celebrate the resurrection of our triumphant king who came in peace, who is conquering and victorious. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Our great God and king, we thank you for your mercy and grace. Lord, we thank you or for how you have pursued us and how you have met us in those places of discouragement and despair. Lord, we thank you for how you have come and you have given us peace.